Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome everybody to episode 27 of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This episode is entitled Tomorrow's Child, and we'll be taking you back to Spaceship Earth and discussing a little bit about uh, the design behind it, the construction and the ride and all the changes that have been done over the years. Uh, before we get to that, as always, sitting in with me tonight is Hal Bowers. Hey, Todd. How's it going, Hal? The radio voice tonight coming in live from Tampa. I'm trying to remain seated because I know that my time machine vehicle is going to rotate any minute now. That's true. you got to be comfortable for that gotta descent back. Absolutely. And Mr. JT Kuja from Ohio, Rubber City of the World. Hi. How you doing? How's it going tonight, JT? It's good. We had a tornado last night. Oh, wow. yeah. We're good, though. You're good. All right. Yes. You have a rubber bunker with a speed ramp to take <laughs> you down there? <laughs> I wish. Straight to Goodyear. Yes, that'd be cool. <laughs> and then, as always, we have Brian P. Miles from the City of Brotherly Love. Party on, Todd. There we go. Look at that. In tribute to Wayne's World's 25th. 25th? 20th. Wow. 25th anniversary, right? It's got to be 25th. 92. 92, yeah. Yeah, 25. 25th anniversary, so... Are they going to turn Mike Myers into a cake? If you're old... (laughs) Yes, the birthday cake, Mike Myers. But if you're old enough to think that, wow, Wayne's World was really old, that was was a long time ago, welcome to our podcast. Exactly. It's all things retro. (laughs) So we're going to jump right into corrections and comments here. Uh, Last month, we had a great episode on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I, I... I will say, guys, I think it was one of our best episodes. We got tremendous feedback on it, and we also received uh, a lot of listens. In fact, it's our average listens per day is is up since since that episode uh, hit the airwaves out there. So we did have uh, Candler Hobbs wrote in, and um, how last month you we were talking about some of the photos of when the uh, subs were made in the Tampa area and then shipped out to Orlando. Um, you thought that the most famous picture of a sub sitting on a flatbed on a street was taken in Bartow, Florida, correct? That's what I thought I thought, but I, th- I think I was unsure. And I think I, I may have actually asked for somebody to correct me because I knew I, I didn't know. Yeah. And sure enough, the listeners came through. Exactly. So Candler Hobbs tells the <laughs> it was wrong. Uh, the photo was actually taken in downtown Plant City, Florida, close to the intersection of West Reynolds Street and North Collins Street. Uh, the yellow brick building is still there. And he says that really not much has changed. Um, you can go on to Google Earth and spin it around and type a look. Uh, and there, there's another picture with one in front, of, in front of the First Presbyterian Church at the corner of West Reynolds and North Thomas Street. And there's another one, at, again, at West Reynolds Street. Uh, and he sent us the links of the photos. We'll, we'll include those in our, in our show notes. Um, so he did a little digging for us a few years ago. He was curious, and uh, he figures that the, they were... They were obviously taken when they were being trucked around, and yeah. um, that one Supposedly on the hot- they 
they took the back roads because they needed to find places that had enough clearance for the sub. So I guess some of the overpasses or underpasses on I four they wouldn't have allowed the sub to to make the clearance. So they, they weren't they weren't built sub height, huh? <laughs> <laughs> They weren't subpar construction, though, right? Wah, wah. No, but actually, the tires. They, uh, I've read a thing with Bob Gird that said, like, when they finally pulled the sub into Walt Disney World, the, like the tires were smoking and like falling apart because the truck was not rated to actually carry the weight of the sub. So wow. they just Funny. barely made it there. That's because they didn't use that Goodyear rubber, right? Right, JT. If they'd used that no, Ohio rubber, not, man, it was not Goodyear. What? I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So, Candler, thanks for writing in. Uh, great information there, and uh, we'll get those pictures posted up. Uh, as always, JT runs out to the uh, listener mailbag. JT, we, we got about three this month, three good ones that we wanted to go over, right? Yeah, um, definitely a good month for listener mail. Thank you, as always. Uh, first one from Twitter, uh, Coder Brad at Coder Brad on the Twitter machine says, "Does anyone have anything definitive on the origin of the five-legged goat of the contemporary? I've heard and seen it has to do with humans not creating perfection, which makes sense. But he was just wondering if anybody knew." So this is one of those things that has bugged me for a while because at for at first I thought maybe it was a, uh, a an unintentional mistake because the fifth leg actually does cross like one piece of tile and go to another tile. But in retrospect, it's that thing had been gone over so many times and approved. It's like there's no way the mistake could have been made because it, it could have been caught multiple, multiple times. So it had to be intentional in some way. Now, there is this uh, this sort of myth, this thing of not being able to to uh, only God can create perfection. And so therefore you have to make part of your stuff imperfect. Uh, that is part supposedly of things like Amish folklore, as well as, uh, like Persian rugs. Um, all of that seems to be, uh, just stuff that's passed down. We, I couldn't find anything, uh, even with those that, that, uh, that definitively had some sort of source. I looked into native American, uh, rug making because it seemed like that would be a direct connection. I could see if she was in the research phase and looking at things like rugs that she could come across this. Uh, and I found on uh, on uh, on Google a very super detailed book from like 1924 about Native American rug making, and there was nothing uh, in that book either. There there is a tradition that seems to have started sometime maybe in the 50s of having a special line which of course i think it's called the spirit line uh and there's a a tradition in rug making where you you don't want to trap the creative energy of the piece inside of the rug itself so you leave this one thread coming out uh, so that way the energy can come out and then it gives you uh you can then feed off the energy to make your next rug which is kind of an interesting thing hmm. but but nothing uh, hard and fast at that time uh, about this being a tradition. Although by the time you get to the 1970s and 1980s, uh, there are people making rugs that are adding intentional flaws and supposedly their grandmothers told them about it. So it could be one of these things that just kind of uh, in modern times found its way into, uh, into that art of rug making. But it doesn't seem to be anything actually from uh, 
from like traditional Indian culture. So um, I did finally, uh, I asked, I can't remember who it was now. I think it was Stephanie uh, on, uh, on Twitter. If someone had a a shot, a picture from uh, the last Mary Blair book that came out. Uh, And uh, there was a book by John Kane maker. And in that book, he actually mentions that there is no direct, there's no way to directly attribute that quote about the mistake to Mary Blair herself it was something that people thought of later on. Um, I did a bunch of research to try to find where that quote might have come from in Disney publications, and I, I can't find anything earlier than like 2002 hmm. that even mentions it. So wow. it's still a mystery, but uh, she never actually explained it herself to anyone. Hmm. So it could be a very small internal reflection on something or yeah. bigger meaning were- that we don't know. Yeah, and there were like four or five people that worked on that uh, that mural with her, and it, some I have to f- actually go and find it, but somewhere there's a couple of tiles that actually has the signatures of the people that worked on that with her, because mm-hmm. that wasn't totally her thing just by herself. Right, right. Um, it's possible one of them came up with the idea, and right. she thought it was cool and did it. So, interesting. Uh, yep. Great research. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, can you just cue some Indiana Jones, Rage of the Lost Ark map room music right now? <laughs> and I'm picturing how in a library or like a Walden books, just looking up rug making books. That's right. That's right. Reading these. Books. These are the extents that I go through in order to find these answers. <laughs> just blowing the dust. Yeah, working hard for you. And if if any of our listeners haven't done so. Go up to where the Contempo Cafe is. You can get right up next to the original, the, the tiles. Um, you're literally just a couple. You know, you you can actually touch them. And and when you stand in front of them, realize that those tiles are three dimensional. That the way that the glazing's been put on, it's really really cool. So um, if you can't take a look at them, uh, super super up close. But and 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 if you're hungry at Christmas time, you can buy uh, a a uh, Christmas cookie with the five-legged goat on it from the contemporaries uh, uh, pop-up bakery stand there that they, they have at Christmas yeah. time. So oh, if you really? want to eat the goat, yes, you can eat a five-legged goat. Huh. I think Take they, ha- I think they have Rice Krispie treats with the five-legged goat on it, too. Uh, I only Gosh, got frozen sorry. things there before. I would have totally eaten the goat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, goat. <laughs> <laughs> it's the goat of the goat, the greatest of all time. Better not to mention so. that again. <laughs> So, Coder Brad, thanks thanks for uh, sending that question in. Awesome research, Joe. Coder Brad. Um, next one. We got an aloha just for you, How. Um, I finally thought of a good question. I thought I remembered a scuba diving outfit in the seas with Nemo that was originally from 20,000 Leagues. Uh, the suit was located in the walkway once entering the building. However, I visited a few months ago and didn't see it there. Um, is this something Reese is remembering wrong, or did she miss it? Any info on this, guys? Uh, the queue did have a lot of artifacts uh, from 20,000 Leagues and some other things, nautical-type things. Uh, and the suit, I do recall, there was a metal diving suit that was mm-hmm. in it. Uh, and so if it is not there now, Reese, uh, you are not uh, losing your mind. It was definitely there at one point, at some point in the queue. Uh, and if it's not there now, they probably removed it for uh, a swim. For those of you who haven't listened to our uh, Living Seas episode, we, we talk about the queue area and how much uh, different artifacts and, and, and reproduction diving bells and real diving suits and all sorts of stuff that the queue used to be filled with because you actually would uh, would have to wait in there uh, years ago. And uh, it was 
much different than it is now with the the all that fake sand and, and yeah and you had to stuff. you had to wait to get in to watch the the movie right you had right. to go you know. queue to the movie to the hydrolators to the cabs the but that's the previous episode so all right well uh thanks reese appreciate it uh next one was uh rob in vegas uh he said hi guys uh he enjoys the podcast his first trip to disney world was back in 1979 um he remembers and sort of a memory slash uh confirmation he wants from us there was a coin machine when you exited Pirates of the Caribbean, if you press the month, uh, the day in the year, it looked like a treasure coin and like the numbers were like embossed. Is that right? Or was it like uh, raised? I'm not sure. I don't remember this, but uh, he lost his when he was eight. What happened to this machine? What do we know about it? Is it around anywhere? And go. All right. Yeah, I have vague recollections, but how I think you've, you, you remember this the best. Yeah. So, uh, so this uh, this type of a coin machine actually started in Disneyland at 67. And when they opened up Walt Disney World, they, they had one of the coin machines there too. So that would have been like early, early 74, late 73. It actually stayed around until probably seven, sometime between 78 and 80. Um, the, the machine inside, um, and we should actually talk about this someday because this was cool. So... I'm, I'm trying to think of where this would be in today's space. So when you come out of the attraction uh, in the exit, you'd come up the speed ramp and then you turn left. There was a little arcade uh, inside of an enclosed space uh, that was to the left. And uh, there was one in Disneyland too. And what they did is they actually took like uh, shooting games and things and customized them to have a Pirates of the Caribbean thing. Uh, theme uh, and I think Colin Campbell worked on the the redesigns of those machines so they took stock machines and then actually made their own like little backdrops and things to put in the machines to make them all piratey um, so the stamping machine was inside there and what you would do is there was this little coin that looked like a piece of eight with a hole cut through it so you could hang it from a, a leather um, strap or a chain or you could turn it into a keychain or whatever you want to do. And you could actually custom stamp whatever message you wanted to up to like, I don't know, 12, you know, 13, 14 characters or something on it. You would, you would set up uh, what you wanted to say. It would move the little, the little letters internally in place. And then you would like pull down a handle and then a great pressure would come down onto the, onto the coin and like actually stamp the coin. Um, so that, that lasted in Walt Disney World until about 1980. And then uh, all the pieces of eight that they had left, they actually uh, took those and just sold them as little souvenirs inside of the gift shop. Um, if, if you came off the right and turned right where the um, where the salon is now, that'll like turn it into a pirate. That, that space used to be part of a, more of a like inside gift shop and the space where the arcade was became like a photo opportunity for a while in the uh in the mid 80s where you could go have your picture taken on a ship with like a ship's wheel interesting interesting lots of good options after the ride to relive your experience for yeah sure. Keep, uh, get your pirate gun at the same time exactly and the most popular is like putting on a sombrero and getting your picture taken <laughs> at the exit wearing a sombrero and yep. it seemed like anytime you came out of the ride somebody 
had a sombrero on getting the picture taken and then they would take the sombrero and put it right back on the stack and getting lice every person (laughs) (laughs) but i swear some days i I would like to do this maybe the listeners can help get me started there have to be literally thousands of pictures of people at that exit wearing a sombrero yeah compile them so i would love to start a collection of like people at the exit with the sombrero on yeah (laughs) piratesombreros.com there we are It's Send funny because it I've seen a lot of sombrero pictures from the Mexico pavilion. Yeah. Uh, oh, from, yeah. The, right. from the next to La Cava, not the Cava, the other tequila place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny that that's where I immediately think of sombreros and not and not pirates. Pirates, I always think of the guns because my nephew made me buy him, buy him two flintlock guns there because one wasn't enough when I took them. <laughs> Like 10 years ago and i left them in the rental car and oh, no. I, had, I had to pay like 40 bucks to have the rental car company ship them to me <laughs> so now, I, is this in the era when they were are they pink and blue ones that you bought him or are they oh were no they, they like were still wood they, 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 they did have the orange caps on them but gotcha okay yeah i had the original ones without any of those caps or anything like that now yeah, how, mine how, they'd shoot you for you had <laughs> You had to pull down pretty hard, and you had to do it every for every letter. You had to keep changing the disc, right, that would pull down and stamp the letter? Oh, yes. Actually, I just found a picture of it. Now, so, is one of these still around anywhere? Oh, yeah. They're, they're out there, like the uh, mold machines that are out there, too, and oh, yeah, moldoramas. Those you, there's so, one Zoltar of those, machines. Yeah, there's one of them at Gatorland. So, there was, if you picture a large dial, like mm-hmm. a clock... Mm-hmm. And instead of number, instead of like the t- the hours on the clock, you have an alphabet running across, like from about seven o'clock to about four o'clock, and then numbers on the bottom. You would take a pointer and point at the letter that you wanted to do, and then you would pull down the handle and it would put that letter in, and then it would move oh. over one space, and then you would pick the next letter. Just like a massive dymo machine, right? Oh, like, right exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now that I recall it, like it seemed like when I did the one at Disneyland, it took forever. Yeah, Come well, on, man. <laughs> and now kids just type it on, like you know, the, my, my son did a dog tag for our, our animals the other day, right? And he just types it on his little LCD screen. <laughs> a laser comes out, engraves it, and spits it out in, in two minutes. You know, done. Modern times. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I appreciate uh, Rob for writing on that awesome question, and uh, I think that uh, are we closing up the mailbag. Is that it for? For this month yeah we'll close it up but you know every month we check it and uh hopefully you know if you write us your message could end up uh yeah. live on the show podcast at retro is where you can reach us tweet at us direct message uh anywhere you want to find us send us your messages all right well it's time that we do this month's audio rewind uh every month we play a little audio clip and ask you the listeners to try to guess what it's from and we give out fabulous prizes so um before we get on uh, further let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind All right, so if you guessed JP and the Silver Stars, which is the uh, steel drum band in Adventureland, you are correct. They were playing Lara's theme, which was uh, composed originally for the film Dr. Zhivago. And also, Brian has another name. What's the other name of the song? Somewhere My Love. That's right. Somewhere My Love. 
So we do have a winner this month. It's Frank Shell. Congratulations, Frank. You guessed correctly. And uh, you'll be receiving a set of retro WW pins, including the Lake and Lagoon Tour, our Globe logo, as well as the Whatchamacallit. And we've got the same prize for this month, if you can guess this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler. So if you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler, send your guesses to podcast at retrowdw.com. Have all entries in by April 3rd, 2017. We will pick a random winner from all correct answers to receive this month's prize, which is a set of Retro WDW pins. And also, all entries, regardless if they are correct or not, will be entered into our summer prize pot. And we've got two things. Uh, JT, you are keeping the list going here, uh, our set list, so to speak. Got it. There it is. What do we have, and what are we adding to this month's prize? January pot? prize. Now, this is bear in mind. It's like we were saying, summer prize. If you're not aware, right. we're giving away a, uh, from January till the summer. That's the first prize pot. Exactly. And then the end of the summer till December. That's prize pot number two. So two prize pots this year. Uh, first prize: a Walt Disney at the Fair four CD audio set that's right. the first prize and we're moving on to this month's prize which for february right yes technically it's march technically it's march but it's the third prize we'll we'll, we'll get six yeah. in there second prize second prize sorry so what do we got we have how you are submitting what we're calling a mystery gift from your prize oh, collection right we're not this gonna this is the first time yeah first time we've done this so it's not going to be revealed exactly immediately uh of what that is and um, Hal has a wide array of, of gifts and, and items to give away. So want something will be given out uh, from his from his prize collection. So it's a mystery mystery gift. That's right. I'm just gonna. I have a big box. I'm gonna reach in and pull something out. And they're something all good. good. It's all good stuff. Whatever this isn't it is. Like yeah, spend it's all, ticket stubs or anything. This is all high quality mm. merchandise. Right. Right. Play the Indiana Jones music again when he digs. Yeah. <laughs> He's digging through the archives again. Once again. Yes. He's going to the library this time. I will, like at the, the end floor. of Raiders, he's going through put, all those crates. Yeah. I will put top men on it. Top, top yes, men. there you go. Our <laughs> top men with a pipe in your mouth. That's right. <laughs> so, again, if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind, um, send your guesses to podcast at retrowdw.com. And, again, all entries, whether correct or incorrect, will be entered into the prize pot to be given away in June 2017. All right, everybody, it's time for this month's main topic, which, as we said at the beginning of the show, is Spaceship Earth. We're going to talk a little bit about the conceptualization of the attraction and the construction and also go through the, the different ride scenes. So, how I think you're going to take us through the conceptual phase first before we get into construction. And um, I, I'll just add, I, I think, guys, this is a ride that, um, an attraction that's obviously been there since open. We've all been on it. It's been through many incarnations uh, since opening, and um, a lot of it has really withstood the test of time, but there still is history. So a lot of listeners may be wondering, you know, why are you doing an attraction that is still there? Um, but again, this plays back to the original Epcot, the original thought process behind the, the theme park. And again, there's been enough changes there that we can talk about some things, um, musical scores and, and narration and different aspects of it that really, you know, um, will We'll bring home the the retro feel to, to this attraction. So, how you got some information on the um, how this all came to be? Yeah. So, 
so on our earlier episodes, we had a, we had an early early episode where we talked a little bit about the about the genesis of, of Epcot, and and we, of course there's that famous story about them pushing the 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 two models together of the industrial park and the uh, that the that became Future World, and then the uh, World Showcase together, and you get this thing. So uh, there was definitely a feeling sort of internally that that Epcot needed to be explained and there had to be some sort of conceptual show that would give people the idea of what Epcot was because originally this was this was a very heady uh, a heady concept it wasn't about going there and, and drinking yourself around the world and it was about opening up uh, new ideas to people and, and giving them experiences they they hadn't thought and, and trying to raise consciousness. So uh, so there was a need, they felt, in order to have some sort of something uh, to introduce people to that concept. Um, they were uh, influenced, certainly, by, by the World's Fairs uh, in 64. They got a lot of experiences when they when they went there and looked at the, looked at the other pavilions. Uh, they copied a lot of stuff from <laughs> expo 67 in uh in montreal right uh yeah. there's geez we, there's some stuff that's just dead on lifts uh <laughs> inc- including uh including a geodesic dome right uh so uh but one of the one of the interesting that things that happened at the world's fair is that there was a um a american pavilion that had a, uh, a history story in it that was written by Ray Bradbury, the uh, the futurist and science fiction author. And he ended up becoming friendly with Walt Disney after the fair was over. Uh, Walt invited him to the studio several times. He got to ride the People Mover before it was done, and he got to see Lincoln uh, while it was working, probably the Disneyland version while they were working with that. And, and uh, Bradbury tells a story about how they were supposed to have an hour meeting that ran over four hours and then his uh disney's secretary was furious at ray bradbury because he and walt got along really really well so uh, fast forward into the 70s when they're working on uh trying to bring this concept of a permanent world's fair to life and somebody got the idea of hey why don't we call ray bradbury because he did this show for uh for the american pavilion uh, let's see what he can do so uh they gave him a ring uh, and they gave him a document uh, that was put together by a name a guy named Fred Williams from the Amber School of Communications at uh, I think it's UCLA or maybe USC. Sorry, uh, and and he sat down with the team and he figured out what were those events uh, in the timeline of history that were really important in information and communication. Uh, and what were the inventions that happened along with those events that helped drive people forward? And he sort of put together the basic timeline. And then Bradbury took that timeline and tied it together with a story. So uh, you have to remember that we're in the very, very early stages of, of Epcot at this point. Um, you have probably seen all kinds of models. Uh, and the model from 1976, while there is a sort of spaceship Earth looking thing there, uh, it's not a geodesic sphere yet. It's just a dome. And uh, the concept from what I can tell at that point is that it was going to be a domed theater uh, and they were going to run a movie in there. And that movie would sort of introduce you, take you on a trip through history, introduce you to the concepts of communication and empowering people through communication in order to uh, drive forward 
it's almost sort of like in some ways the obelisk in 2001 uh, and then when that's over the doors open up and and now that you're set up in your mind it's like you're ready to go out and hit all the other pavilions and uh and learn like crazy so uh on july 22nd 1977 bradbury uh finished up this thing that he called man and his spaceship earth um which he just writes is a a concept by ray bradbury uh, and you can find this we'll we'll link to it uh out on the internet for you to download it it's it's a absolutely fascinating document um to see this concept and it's it's real proto stage uh and and a bit of it actually did make it into the first version that ran um, but i'll very i'll quickly read some of this and I, and I think you'll see how this sets up the entire concept of epcot that we were familiar with at that point um he says Man and his spaceship Earth is an introduction to the Epcot Center future world. It is an optimistic statement. He says, in the chapters of our Man and the Spaceship Earth story, we'll seek guests' understanding of the relationship between communications and survival. And then finally, the Epcot Center future world will be depicted as today's form. So they actually saw Epcot as a way to, uh, to disseminate information uh, to the public that they wouldn't carry them home to like do things in their communities and, and in their lives. It says here the tools of survival are continual hands-on use for our tools to become the electronic world of information and communication. These tools help us to better understand and manage our instruction book for Spaceship Earth with accurate and relevant information about energy, health, the sea, the land, outer space, communications, and transportation. So there he's just wrapped every pavilion uh, right up into that. One of the things that I thought was really interesting going through this a little bit more is he talks about uh, three time periods uh, and, and you'll see how these actually end up reflecting in the uh, in the attraction as it's dead. Uh, and the the last uh, the last point uh, actually shows you where they were headed for when they were looking for sponsors. So my understanding is when they were first trying to get sponsors for this attraction, they were actually not looking for telecommunications company, but actually computer companies like IBM. So, and, and here's why. So the first period represents the recording of information. The second period marks the dawn and flourishing of disseminating man's recorded information. And then the third period is the era of processing of information. And this is where the computer sponsorship comes in. Uh, there's this term that you would saw all throughout Epcot during the 1980s where they talked about the age of information. And that's something that's completely lost on us now. And it, it just sounds silly and hokey. Uh, but this concept of being able to have computers uh, actually help us to be able to sort through all of the the information that exists. Even today, that's that's a huge issue. Uh, you know, fake news and and all that stuff. So um, he was he was really getting at something here. Uh, and, and what you see if you go through this uh, document is it's a, it's a little bit of a bigger show than what we got. It's definitely more uh, more film based. Um, but you can see how they, once they signed, uh, the bell system as a sponsor, they just kind of tweaked the ending there to sort of de-emphasize the, uh, the computer part of it. They, mm -hmm. they talked about it, even in the Cronkite version, they talk about it a little oh, yeah. bit, but you can see they tailored it a little bit for their sponsor. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, go, go find this. Uh, it'll be in the show notes and, and read it. It's, it, it is really fascinating. So tying directly into that, how? So people are thinking, oh, Spaceship Earth, Disney coined the, the term and the phrase and all that. And that's, 
Uh, incorrect. Uh, Disney used this. Um, uh, there was a, a book called Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth uh, by Buckminster Fuller. It was written in 1968. And the book itself was about relating Earth to being a spaceship um, going through space. And it has a finite amount of resources, fuel, etc., and can't be resupplied. Uh, it was a short book, but if you think about that and think about uh, us riding on the spaceship Earth, it's a direct correlation to that. So as Howe pointed out, they didn't really know if they wanted a, a geodesic sphere at first. They looked at from the construction point of view what it would take to do things like St. Peter's Cathedral. Uh, as, as Howe pointed out, they were very inspired by the, the 67 dome, the Expo 67 dome in Montreal. That was a big gold dome that they were thinking about building. Um, but uh, Gordon Hoops was the uh, WED's project designer on, on, the, on Spaceship Earth. And he, his intention was he wanted to create an atmosphere for the guests that raises their spirit and kindles an excitement for the human experience in the future. So really, that's what started to bring about the idea for the, the full sphere, uh, as we call it. Now, if you think about that, originally it was just they thought maybe we could just rest this thing on the ground, but they wanted to elevate it and, and bring it up uh, so that the guests could walk under it. Now, with that, they obviously had a lot of engineering challenges with that because uh, you can't just support this on some sort of structure without the outside skin just completely ripping off or anything. So they had to um, do quite a bit of research on it. They hired MIT. Um, MIT did a number of wind tunnel tests to see what would happen by raising this sphere off the ground, what would it do to the pressure and the changing of the winds so that uh, they didn't want people walking underneath or waiting in line for the attraction and just being, you know, knocked down by a gust of, of huge wind. They, that passed the test and they were just said, okay, we can raise it. So I, here's a question for, for you guys. How many legs does Spaceship Earth have? I'm going to guess four. Four, okay. I'm going to... I'm going to guess six because it seems like there's three tripods, but there's two things coming out of those three tripods. You are correct, Hal. That is right. So so as you approach Spaceship Earth, as you're coming into Epcot, you see the, the two main off uh, the left and the right, and those each have two inside them. So there's four. And then in the rear of the building, there's another two that flank the, the, the sides of the building that it's connected to where, where you exit the attraction. So correct. There's actually six. Imagine just putting uh, this ball on these six points, if you will. It would it would it would sink. It would rip the shell of the building off. It just wasn't wasn't going to work. So they had to figure out a way to design the structure um, so that they could hold it up. And this is where it really gets it's ingenious the way that they did this. So those six um, legs that we spoke of, they they drove piles about 160 feet uh, into the ground. Uh, and then these six legs connect up to a truss system that creates a platform or, or a table, if you will. Uh, it's hexagonal in shape. The top of the table would carry the weight of the show building. And then the edge of the table would actually carry the weight of the domes. Now, I say domes uh, because we're, as we're going to find out and talk about in a little bit, there's actually two domes that make up the complete sphere. So it's kind of kind of interesting. So. Uh, the way that this works is that um, during the construction, they actually started to build the show components on this platform or stage or whatever you want to call it, table, and started to build that first before they started to encapsulate it so they could work on um, putting the, the helix in and different things. Uh, and they also had an elevator shaft. It's that mirrored area right down below that, that 
runs pretty much up the center. It's a little off to the side. Um, so anyway, so how do you now get this all connected up? So now, if you imagine in construction, you've got six legs holding up a table, and then on that table is the show. Um, they developed something called uh, quadrupods, and these were basically pyramidal steel structures. They were welded off-site, and then they were bolted in to the hexagon and because of different sizes and shapes and, and everything they were able actually to turn that hexagon with these quadrupods um, a, a circular pattern and that was around the bottom three quarters or so uh, of of the uh, of spaceship earth these uh, quadrupods were really really key in being able to produce uh, the, you know spaceship earth the way that you see it today this is where we get the two different domes so these quadrupods go out to the side of this platform and they started to build and fabricate triangular steel structures. And then these were welded off site and erected via, you know, different methods of bolting and, and welding. They tried to do a lot of the welding um, under uh, under conditions that were correct and not doing it out in the, the Florida sun and everything. And actually, as they started to weld these things, they still had to do uh, testing and radiographs uh, on, the, on the actual structures they were building it. They completed over 4,000 radiographic exposures alone on Spaceship Earth, making sure that the welds and different areas of the structure were, were complete. And they did all sorts of other non-destructive testing. So uh, it's kind of interesting. So now, if you can imagine this table, we've got a table, we've got the platform, we've got the ride on it. And now because of the quadrupods around the edge of the table, we're now able to start building and using these triangular shapes to start building the actual dome. And the top dome, rests on the table on the edge on these quadrupods and goes up so it sits and the bottom half of spaceship earth or actually the bottom quarter hangs off of the quadrupods so you're not seeing a complete sphere uh in in the sense of uh it uh, being a completely hollow dome uh, you're actually seeing two domes large three-quarter top sitting and the bottom quarter hanging off of the quadrupods which are connected to to the platform so now with those uh, triangular panels that we put up, we, you know, that they put up, they've actually created the first skin or shell of Spaceship Earth. And the reason I say first shell is that the first shell was actually made of steel and then covered in neoprene fabric. And that was the waterproof and fireproof um, covering that they needed on the building. That sealed the building for air conditioning and all sorts of other things, but they wanted to make it look good. Well, they decided to use a, a product called Alcubond, which is basically polyethylene plastic sandwiched between two sheets of aluminum. They did all sorts of lightning tests and exposure tests, you know, long-term weather tests on it, and it just re always remained the same. And, and apparently Disney even said that it's self-washing, but that, as we know, they have to power wash Spaceship Earth now and then, so that didn't, that didn't really last. But um, these Alcubon panels are what you see today. There's been some urban legends that, you know, years ago, the surface was so highly polished that it would ignite the surrounding landscape on fire as the sun hit it. Or if you stood in the right spot, World of Motion attraction, uh, you could get a sunburn at the right time of day. And that's, <laughs> that's all false. There's the, no, no sun, no, no such thing as that. It's not a precise place exactly. where the beam hits the map room. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so as the inside skin was made of these large triangles, John Hench actually decided that those triangles were, so to speak, too big. So he decided on the outer skin, which is what you see today, uh, he would divide those large triangles up into four separate triangles and make them form 
four separate pyramids and that's the outside that we we know and love today um and they're about a quarter the size of the internal triangles now why are there two two different you know skin so to speak and that's as we talked about a little bit the weather is one you want to weatherproof it um and also from a decorative standpoint but most importantly it was also from a weather perspective that where was the water going to go if you had just proof you know weatherproof this dome all the water would run off around the edge soaking guests underneath probably drip down around the bottom of the dome you just have this deluge if you will at the very bottom so what's interesting is the the rainwater goes through the outer skin and goes through the cracks and then adheres itself to the inside skin of of uh, spaceship earth and drips down to what you could basically call the equator where if you imagine a, a gutter goes around the entire space between the um, inside skin and the outside skin there's about a foot difference between the two and the water is then or naturally drained into uh, the lagoon at, uh, in world showcase so uh, really really interesting when you think about it how they how they did this the whole thing being being held up it took 26 months and it did not go unnoticed by the way um frank heger and glenn bell were of uh, the firm that developed the pavilion's design um they received a silver medal from the uh jmf lincoln arc welding foundation and for all the welding that was done and the in 1982 the sphere was honored as one of the top engineering projects of the year by the national society of professional engineers so it definitely got recognition in different different areas another interesting thing that that came across is that i i didn't realize this too from an air conditioning perspective the there's air cannons in there that that push the cool air only onto the ride path that outside of the ride path it's actually very hot because the cost of an you know size of that you know just just trying to cool the whole area would be ridiculous so they try to keep the air directly on the path um, of, of the vehicles So speaking of vehicles, we need to uh, we need to board, but more importantly, before we do that, we approach Spaceship Earth, and we're going to walk up the entrance ramp. That's right. So in the old days, uh, when you walked up, uh, there was a little poster stand right there with a really cool poster of uh, of Spaceship Earth there. Uh, so uh, there weren't a lot of posters, I think, anywhere else in the park, like you would have under the Main Street Station. But Spaceship Earth had its own poster, which I, I suppose might have been there to sort of clue people into what it was, because there's you can't tell what's going on inside. It's just this big silver ball. So maybe the <laughs> thought was, uh, if you saw the poster, be like, oh, that's something I'm supposed to get into. Do, do you want <laughs> to know what I when in 1986, my first time, I had no idea what it was, and I was concerned that there was some sort of high speed that did loops. It just went around. I had no idea. So it, it's it one makes... of those guys in the motorcycles. Is it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's a circus, yeah. like a, <laughs> going around like a really rubbish. Just hundreds of them in there, though. Just... And you were on one of them. That was petrified. <laughs> Actually, did they do that at the Epcot Circus? That wasn't that one of the. Uh, they might have the gags. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so, so you have that, and of course, the other thing that that you see is that enormous mural of the the caveman and the the uh, spaceship and the yes. astronaut. Uh, yeah, one of the best murals. Yeah. So that that mural is by a guy named Claudio Mazzoli. Uh, he was an, he's Italian, and uh, I don't know when he learned English, but uh, apparently he learned English 
and came over. Uh, I think he somehow or another ran into Mark Davis or something and they invited him over. But he, he went and worked for WED for eight years and worked on a bunch of different projects. And I had no idea, uh, but he actually was the conceptual artist that that came up with the layouts for for all the scenes in Spaceship Earth. So uh, there's paintings of uh, of all the different scenes, and and this was Claudio's work. So uh, this was not a Mark Davis ride. This was not a Raleigh Crump ride. This was a Claudio Mazzoli ride. Um, and after he worked for Disney. Uh, he actually went to Universal and he worked on the E.T. ride and the Conan stage show that's uh, that's out in California, which is, I'm sure, gone. Became backdraft, I think, and then turned into something else. Uh, and also worked on the Back to the Future uh, attraction. And now I think he's back in Italy and he uh, works. Uh, he's like in charge of some Italian theme park over there. Oh. So that was that was kind of interesting. Uh, so, yeah, so. Uh, so you get in, uh, and if you uh, if you recall, uh, well, even today, it's, it's you kind of get into this big circular room. Uh, you get which hasn't vehicle. hasn't changed at all since the opening. Not really. I'm trying to remember because it's been a couple. Is the uh, is the little gag with like the um, in the walls embedded in those those extruded panels? Does it have like the little electricity sparks? I think there's yeah, I think yeah. they're still going. Yeah. If not, there were <laughs> there were these little gray electricity sparks that would form a like a moving pattern. It would just go from left to right through like like sparks to energize your time machine vehicle. Yeah, exactly. I guess that was the idea. Is your and they legitimately the concept was you were supposed to be getting into a time machine vehicle and, and going on this trip yeah. through time. And the Omni Mover in, in this area had a most Omni Movers that we know of have a have a straight loading platform. With a, with a speed ramp that's moving, you know, at the same speed as your vehicle. This has a very unique um, carousel type loading, very similar to uh, the People Mover, only on a much smaller scale. And I think they get about, what, five vehicles, five to eight vehicles maybe on the load at, at any given yep. time. Um, it works really well. It does. It does. Yeah. It's very, very efficient. And actually, if you look at the, the plans of Spaceship Earth, the, the way that the load and unload is done, it's kind of like an S through the through the system so it's very efficient and very it, it saves a lot of space yeah. um, in terms of load, loading space now the one thing that is different about those vehicles is there is it every two or three vehicles there's like that big triangle mm -hmm. sort of prism shape in between yep uh, yeah i'm not sure what's i'm not sure what's going on in there <laughs> my but understanding is, is that that is actually part of the motor power system okay um and and different other electronics have, have uh, are hidden in there as well Okay. Now, one of the things that I did hear about, and I wish, I can't remember if it's somebody that we had on the show, uh, or some somewhere in our research, I think we revealed that, uh, I know that there were breakdowns for the first, like... Yeah, Tom, Tom, Tom Nagel okay. told us that. And, and what it was, eventually it was like, they just used underpowered motors. Uh, oh, that's in, right, yeah. For the thing, right? And that's what was causing all the problems. So eventually, they had to replace all the motors with... with motors that are actually rated for it and i want to say uh the turnaround mechanism at the top where the yes. vehicle would spin it's like that didn't work for months and they, i think it was they had to have cast members turn them around yeah so <laughs> we'll explain when we get up to the top why you're turning around but and uh and i think it was finally someone from engineering at wdw 
that came up with the solution for that. And the maintenance guys with the engineers that worked on site actually fixed that uh, because the it's the way it was designed in California just never worked. Hmm. So, anywho, uh, so so let's take a tour uh, yep. up Spaceship Earth. AT&T welcomes you to Spaceship Earth and invites you to explore the story of communications. And now, your host, Walter Cronkite. So you get on your vehicle, which does not have screens. That's at right. This point. It's just those your blue vehicles with speakers. Uh, you go by the electric guys, and as you start to go up to the uh, up to the the up ramp, if you look up, you can kind of look up in the ceiling. And see a star field up there. Right. Now, originally, and, there was fog, too, is my understanding. Is that when it first opened, the star field was added later on, and there was this oh, okay. fog that you would go through. Oh, interesting. Uh, and the, the stars came in the, in the Walter Cronkite version that was added, but originally ah. it was fog, and that, that was all removed. Um, another interesting thing note, note on the Omnimover is uh, how, as you said, as they're starting to go up, they're one of the only Omnimover vehicles I know of that have headrests because of the steep... In, um, ascent and descent. That so you look at them and you're like, oh, this is kind of odd, but you're, you, you know, it is pretty steep and uh, your head does go back. You can rest back on it. It's way steep. I mean, I remember yeah. <laughs> as a kid going on it for the first time and it was a little unsettling yes. when you were coming back down again. I always thought that like brakes would release and the whole thing would just like <laughs> spin around. <laughs> You'd go up and come back down. <laughs> it's probably pretty well balanced if you think about it. That's yeah. probably the, the amazing engineering of it is it's a complete chain and it's so well balanced that at any given time, it's just, you know, a very easy move too with minimal motor power. Um, so in that star field that they added, so which I didn't know, so mm-hmm. I'm glad you told me that. In the last panel, I think it might have been the first hidden Mickey. Yes, was in there. If you could look up, and I think it was because of the way that the star field actually like reflected against a mirror mm. that there was a Mickey head shape up in there. So and this uh, is all to my pre- knowledge. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say it's all pre LED lights and stuff. These were like little. Uh, gr- uh, Green of wheat bulbs on yeah. on on basically hanging down from wires. I mean, a yeah. very primitive star field, but done really well. Yep, looked really good. And then we start to head up uh, head up this huge lift, uh, and uh, the very first version of the ride uh, had a slightly different script than the one that that we'll talk most about tonight, which was Walter Cronkite. So, the the first version had a. Uh, had a script that was very close to what Ray Bradbury wrote. Uh, and we should find this on the internet and, and link it on the show notes so you can read it in detail. Um, that script was either uh, narrated by a guy named Lawrence Dobkin, who also narrated the Hall of Presidents uh, at uh, Walt Disney World, or Vic Perrin, <laughs> who... And it is incredible that after all of these years and all of these ex-engineers or Imagineers and cast members and all, that there is still dispute over <laughs> who actually narrated yeah. it. If you, it's very interesting. So Vic Perrin, uh, not that anyone will remember this because I ha- I had to go find this out. There was a television show called The Outer Limits in the 1960s, and there was this kind of strange disembodied voice that said we control the horizontal we control the vertical that was that was Vic Perrin now now Vic actually did the voiceover uh 
in the Redux screens in the pre-show and in Theater 1, I think, of the Universe of Energy. So it is possible that a lot of people thought it was Vic because he did the stuff in Universe of Energy. And, and it probably doesn't make sense for him to do both places. Uh, but there's only one very kind of poor recording of this version that's out there. Uh, so it's it's a little difficult to tell. It doesn't sound exactly like Lawrence Stopkin. It sounds more like Vic Perrin, but uh, um, there was a thing where Marty Sklar came out, I think, at the Epcot 30 event, right? Or 20? 25? 30. Yeah, 30. And even in his book, he's like, I don't know why people think it's Vic Perrin. It was definitely Lawrence Stopkin. So, I mean, I guess you have to believe Marty Sklar. Just sounds different uh and what's funny is these guys were all on radio shows and westerns and all kinds of weird things too so anyways uh so we we go up the ascent so let's journey back forty thousand years to the dawn of recorded history we'll trace the path of communications from its earliest beginnings to the promise of the future And uh, the first thing that you see when you finally get up to the top of the hill uh, is we're in Cro-Magnon days. And uh, today there's a very fancy uh, 3D animated uh, mm. version of this fight between a, a mastodon and cavemen. Uh, but at that point, uh, there were just some slides that were projected up against the screen. They kind of had like a wavy look over them or something too, right? Yeah. They were kind of dim and hard to see. Yeah, um, they looked like models. Hmm. Uh, to to me, it looked like they had actually had made models of the scene with the intent of building it there, and then at the end was just like nah, and they well, just uh, shot the models and they put those up instead. It's just a model. It, it also goes back when we talked about world emotion. We talked how the very first couple scenes were were you know the caveman scene was very dimly lit and there wasn't a lot going on. And it goes back to my idea, my th theory too, that your eyes are still adjusting to the dark, and you can't have a very detailed scene as soon. You've been out in the blazing Florida mm. sun. You've come inside. You're immediately thrown into pitch black. You can't have a lot. Bef be you know, you're going to miss all the details. So, gear up the, uh, you know, ramp it up as as the eyes adjust. That makes sense. I'm gonna I'm gonna correct Hal on his extinct animals. Uh -huh. In the in the scene today, it's a woolly mammoth, not oh, okay. a mastodon. We have reached the dawn of recorded time, an age when mammoth creatures roam the land. But with spoken language, the ancient hunters learn to work together and meet the challenges of this hostile world. Oh, well, thank you, Brian. I, I don't want to get that wrong, so I'm glad you told me the right thing. So getting back to the, to the woolly mammoth thing, uh, what I found fascinating is... Uh, this was actually a, a very similar to what they had done for the 1964 World's Fair in the Magic Skyway. There was also uh, a whole segment there with cavemen talking about communication and, and killing a woolly mammoth. Uh, so it's very similar to what they had already done. Um, so after this setup, then we move into the, uh, the first scene, which is actually cave painters. In primal tribes, the skills of survival are passed on to new generations through the art of storytelling. Not trusting this knowledge to memory alone, our ancestors create a lasting reminder with cave paintings. So you have uh, the shaman dressed up with his deer bone heads, uh, headgear uh, telling a story. 
to kids and you're uh and you see uh there's a a caveman artist working uh painting pictures of like uh buffalo and uh uh some other like big horned beasts there's a little kid uh doing uh blowing uh pigments around his hands and leaving his handprints on there there's a there's somebody grinding uh pigment uh there so it's uh and there's supposedly uh different bones and uh, things of actual period animals. Those are actually cast from actual animals uh, at the Paleolithic collection of the pa- from the Page Museum in Los Angeles. So it's a ah. saber-toothed tiger, a lion, a cave bear, and two dire wolves. So there you go. And, and, I, and I think the 2007 refurb is the first time they animated those yes. cave paintings. That's yep. right. Oh, they, yeah. They, yeah, they were, they were just static uh, prior to that. Yep. He would just kind of stand in front of it was it was very dark. So he would stand in front of a, the shaman was standing in front of a fire and, and the vast majority of the light just came from this fake fire, which is really at that time just smoke with like some red lights projected on it. And that was that was like state of the art fire <laughs> for Epcot back then. Um, so we get out of the uh, we get out of the cave painting scene uh and the concept there is that they're teaching, uh, they're teaching knowledge about how they survived that attack, uh, how they killed the beast, uh, and they're passing that information on about hunting and things to the next generation so that they can continue to go forward. Um, and then we go to uh, ancient Egypt. Ages later, stories and knowledge are transcribed in complex pictures and symbols. Hieroglyphics mark the rise of written language. And soon, with papyrus scrolls, the written word begins to travel out across the land. You end up in the time of the pharaohs, and as you approach the scene, on the right-hand side, you saw a temple. And uh, way up at the top of, uh, of one of the columns, there was a guy up there putting uh, hieroglyphics on it and he would kind of move his his arm up and down and kind of pretend like he was uh uh like tapping uh at that and and that guy is gone now i'm not sure what happened to him but yep. he disappeared probably in like 07 accurate those hieroglyphics are accurate to the gods of anubis soker and thoth are all represented and um Apparently, the, the the translation takes up several pages. All right. So then, on on the left hand side, you see a a guy with a Beatles wig, <laughs> working on uh, making papyrus, and and actually it's pretty cool because they uh, they have like little fake papyrus plants behind them, so it kind of pulls that whole thing together. I remember the uh, the, the tapping sound. Oh yeah, that cut through. Cut yes, through everything. That, that cut and, through the attraction, like the guy going hee 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 hee. Yes, the world of motion. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it it bothers me that that. His his hammer or mallet, whatever you want to call it, never touches the paper, you know, because obviously right. it would wear a hole in it. But I was always, oh, come on, make it, make it at least look like it's touching. Uh, but actually, this is one of the few places where they did uh, animatronics without any, like, clothes. So they had to re- do a really good job with the skins yeah. to, like, keep them looking real there. They always looked a little oily, though, I thought. That's true. Well, it was hot in Egypt. It's true. That's true. It was just yeah, the sweat. It's warm. It's the sweat. Yeah. They're just <laughs> very hot. Uh, so paper is the is the invention here that that's going to drive us forward. So being able to write things on paper in order to disseminate that way, um, and then we've got the guy ga- making paper, and then we move up to uh, to the pharaoh and his wife, and uh, I don't know if, what the guy is supposed to be who's standing around with him. He, he he's very intimidating. 
He looks like World William Howard Taft, I think. <laughs> and um, you've got one of his like agents, I guess you could say, scribing what whatever he's yes. he's dictating to them. And it so is actual uh, it is actual Egyptian or whatever the language was at the time, but uh, yeah. it is it can be translated. If you're interested, we we have the translation. Oh, fantastic. So yeah, so the so he's the Pharaoh's just up there rattling off this or that and the other thing and they're writing it down and uh, and we're starting to see how the the info gets passed around uh, and I think they had some scrolls too which which then leads to the next scene uh, of the Phoenicians. The value of writing for accurate record keeping appeals to Phoenician merchants. They create an alphabet simple enough for any to learn and share this new tool at ports along the Mediterranean. So one of the effects here that I think has kind of been lost or at least you have to really look for it now um is the fact that uh what the scene is supposed to depict is two people meeting on two different boats that are pulled up next to each other right so you should be able to actually see both boats rocking and there's a guy uh with a rope actually like holding the two boats together Mm -hmm. off to the right hand side uh, but that main scene is uh, is these two traders meeting, you know, in the water, uh, trading stories and and these scrolls back and forth. One of one of the reasons it's hard also to picture the boats moving is there used to be a third boat in the scene, off to the off to the right, like like mm-hmm. approaching them, and that boat was removed uh, during one of the rehabs oh. over the years. So there used to be a little third boat. Uh, kind of forced perspective coming up on That's the scene. Cool. In classic Greece, the alphabet grows and flowers with new expression, and a new stage of storytelling emerges. A stage on which we examine our world and ourselves. The theater is born. This scene has changed a little bit today versus the way it was uh, in the old days. So, uh, in the past, when you got up to the little Greek scene, it had the columns like it has today, uh, but it wasn't one. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln or whoever that is, like talking to guys oh, yeah. sitting down. Uh, they were putting on the play Oedipus Rex, right? And uh, there was a superly overly animated guy with his arms swinging around like crazy, <laughs> uh, wearing a mask that that stood on the right, and then uh, another guy kind of kneeling down. Uh, in front of him on the left and then like a slightly shrunken tiny little guy in the back to try to keep the forced perspective going uh, who is watching the two of them uh, talking about this so uh, the concept here was to talk about how theater is drama and and math and and some of the other uh, the theater arts and I guess in today's uh, version, they decided to go with math instead of theater as the thing that the Greeks... I mean, the Greeks obviously did come up with math and all kinds of other things, too. So, Well, I think um, I think the show now is less communication-based than it was with when it was with Bell and AT&T. Um, and now with Siemens, it's, it's more about information and mathematical and, you, mm-hmm. know, you know... So I think that might have been some of the change because now it's more of a... a yeah, like I said, technical. The Romans built a mighty system of roads, a long-distance network to carry laws and tidings over a far-reaching empire. We move out of the Greek era and into the Roman era. Uh, and 
to me, this is one of the greatest little little scenes that they have set up. It's it's so well done. It's, it's so simple. One of the best, and uh, it looks so good. Yeah, and and what the scene shows is a uh, a Roman senator talking to a centurion uh, who's. He's up on the steps and the centurion is kind of down and there's a, a boy holding these two horses. So this guy has come in in his chariot to deliver this message. And there's this really neat forced perspective painting where it shows the city that they're in kind of going down uh, off into infinity. And then there's a hill behind it. And in prior days, um, there were little uh, projections done uh, where all the, the flames were in the show. Right. Or I should say on the painting. So you you sort of had this idea that there was like different lighted uh, fires, uh, torches uh, all throughout the city. And there was a really neat little projection effect, which was hand animated. Uh, it didn't totally match, but it, it was a really cool idea uh, where you, you saw like a chariot going down uh, horizontally uh, across and then turning a corner and then kind of going off in the distance. And that effect was removed uh, during the 2007. It was it was it was one of my favorite pieces of that yeah. ride. <laughs> uh, I just used to love watching that thing come, go up into the hills, and then come back. Go as up subtle the hills. as subtle as it was, and and like I said, how it was the, it was very white. It was almost ghost looking, but you did you didn't need it yeah. to to pull away from the scene. It just added that this was an active town even though it was night and, and the streets were lit with the cauldrons that um, you know there was still activity going on and there was a chariot going through um, it's really neat and, and another you know how you mentioned that the, the cauldrons and, and stuff going down the street lighting the street up um, right on the steps uh, where the senator was was standing is on either side or are, are 3d versions of those cauldrons you know and, and yep. with fake flames in them that's some of the best uh, you know, fake flame effect too that they've done. They really, really good. Looked good. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, there's a Latin inscription uh, that you see, and actually that comes from the uh, Twelve Tables of Roman Law that were uh, codified around 451 BC, and um, so that's that's what they were originally put on bronze tablets and, and put in the marketplace. But uh, and then there's a statue, which is the statue of Augustus. Cool. Oh, that's right. So that's that statue and those uh, things are as you're approaching the scene coming yep. up out of Greece. It's like you sort of see that there. It is interesting the uh, the way that a lot of the sets are designed are are very minimalist. Uh, there's a lot of cases where these set pieces just literally run up against black. Yeah, uh, it's not fleshed out. They didn't do like wall to wall background background paintings. Uh, they use lighting. And uh, and minimal sets like very effectively through a lot of this. I think they had to do that because also too that the change from scene to scene was so drastic. It wasn't like you were just moving from Bob doing A to Bob doing B. You know, or right. it was you're you're jumping thousands of years and and you, you had to make that transition. You had to almost cut to black and then fade up again. So a lot of these, um, as I was talking about, up against a black wall or some of these little additional um, props in the scenes that weren't lit as well they added to the ramp up of that of that scene as you approached it so as you come out of the uh the roman scene with the senator and the centurion glorious rome falls victim to the flames of excess ages of knowledge are lost or forgotten in the ashes 
and you see just sort of like a window and some and there's actually a really neat effect with uh, like timbers being mm. lit from the inside and the infamous smell <sighs> of Rome burning along with the, the smoke and soot and isn't it true that some days it seems like if you're outside of Spaceship oh, Earth yes. waiting, you yes. can smell it? Yeah, there's a distinct, and it's not even the, the. there's just this distinct Spaceship Earth smell that if you go under where the gift shop is, it's just starting to come around the elevator shaft. It just, yeah, it just wafts out yeah. and hits you. It's, it's for some reason, that area to me is always, is always where I, where I, where I smell it. Um, there's actually some graffiti too in the scene. Um, I, I can't read Latin. But uh, I think it's qui qui amat pere. Maybe I don't know how that if that's the right way to say it. But it says, "May whoever loves perish." And that's that's what the graffiti is. So I I've never even seen the graffiti, and I've got to go find it uh, in in that scene. But all is not lost, for Islamic and Jewish scholars continue to preserve ancient wisdom in noble libraries. In their travels, they record knowledge and share their findings with cultures east and west. So our next scene has gotten a little jokey (laughs) over the course of time. And that is, we now go into uh, what is now called the world's first backup system. Because, yeah, we see Rome burning. Right. And right. Uh, all the, all that knowledge is lost. So Gone. now what? And here's where we get into the like the weird sensitivities of, of today. So originally it was it said that Islamic scholars saved had basically had this information stored in their libraries. Then it became uh, during the Cronkite version Islamic and Jewish scholars. And now I think they just say Arab instead of Or Middle Eastern or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what was fascinating about the way this, that uh, this was set up, and I and I found this document uh, that someone was selling on eBay that actually lists out all the items of clothing that all the anim- animatronic figures are wearing, uh, and they actually mention by name, uh, or I should say by nationality. There's four guys today. There's only three, but originally there were four figures sitting around a table exchanging information. Uh, and they all come from different places. Mm-hmm. So figure 25 was Persian. Figure 24 was East Indian. Figure 22 was a Turk. And figure 23 was African. Hmm. So uh, so the concept was that all these uh, scholars from different uh, Islamic uh, societies came together to uh, exchange this information and then they could then carry it into into other places uh, and and have this knowledge base continue to go forward interesting um yeah and uh you see also there's an astronomer up on a balcony with a uh with an exact duplicate of a of an ancient sextant yeah uh, which which is a really neat little scene they um, uh the metropolitan museum of art actually supplied the photos for that cool kind of neat and this, I, I hope all these extra little additional things we're adding here makes you realize that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when they were building Epcot, we've, we've said it time and time again on some other attractions, you know, we've talked in other attractions, the attention to detail. I could buy a sec- sextant at my local, uh, uh, you know, Marshalls or TJ Maxx and throw it up there. Nobody would know the difference. But Disney wanted to make sure that things were correct because compounded incorrect items don't lend to the feel of it being authentic and you've got to complete the story 100 percent if you want to feel 100 percent authentic 
And they were, they were actually, I actually saw quotes where they were concerned that they would get letters from people. Yeah. Like, they're wearing the wrong thing, or right? like, this thing isn't right for the time period. So they were, they were actually trying to avoid getting letters that today probably no one would care about. Um, <laughs> as you move through the library uh, on the other side, today there's one figure who's uh, sitting down and reading a book, but in, uh, in this, uh, pre-2007 version there was another figure uh who was also standing and reading a book and it's my belief that he uh got moved up to the top and he is now the uh, computer scientist that's up with the uh the disco mm. computer lady i gotta check out the faces and, and see if that's a match but uh he he has disappeared uh there were originally 63 audio animatronic figures and two horses and a couple of them have have seemed to move around and gone missing and and been replaced over the years. Um, so from there, we move on to uh, the monks. In Western abbeys, monks toil endlessly, transcribing ancient writings into hand-penned books of revelation. This is probably this one. This, Go ahead. It, uh, it exhibits almost a little bit of Mark Davis. You know, yep. it's got his level of it's it's there's not a lot of humor in this ride. But if the, if you're going to find it, this is this is the most well-known spot. This is the one piece where the the Disney like sense of humor does manage to shine through. Yeah. So uh, so we move on to this uh, an abbey. Abbey. I guess it, you yes, say. an abbey. And uh, as as you come in from one side, there's this monk working on a scroll and Cronkite talks about that. And uh, the desk that he's working on is enormous. And it isn't until you get past the halfway point of that desk and you get over to the other side of it that you can see that the, the monk on the other side is sleeping. Uh, and it's, it's still exactly that way today. That that gag hasn't changed at all. Yep. His, his body's going up and down. You hear him snoring. It's, it's, uh, you've yeah. seen it. It's, you feel like he can breathing on you. <laughs> it's, yeah. His pen is just still in his hand. So. Very simple. Uh but like super effective uh, and very entertaining. Uh, and from there, we start to move into the uh, the Renaissance. The dawn of the Renaissance brings a wondrous new machine, the printing press. Now books and authors flourish as never before. And uh, we all know who Gutenberg is. He, he invented basically the, the, the printing press. Um, so that you could make copies not by hand and he's inspecting actually um one of his first print he's got the big magnifying glass up and and you see his face through it but it actually is printed that it's an actual page of the original gutenberg bible um that he's that he's inspecting as it's coming off the press so uh so this is a scene where where somebody disappeared and ended up someplace else on the ride later on which Hmm. i i didn't realize I, i was fortunate enough to to uh to start digging into some of the stuff and, and was looking at some of the um, Martin of Martin's vids. Uh, they went through, he and several other people in the WDW Magic uh, forums did a lot of detective work on this. Uh, so I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of him in this case. There was a figure uh, that was sitting sort of at a table. I think it might have been a type tray. And it was a sort of a youngish man. That figure got pulled during the Walter Cronkite time and got moved up to the top of Spaceship Earth, and he'll end up being the boy that's working on the computer hmm. uh, once we get up to that section. 
So uh, the, that scene that we'll talk about wasn't there, and, and that figure got relocated. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a real neat little scene of of them, and they're actually working the printing press, and you can see the guy uh, pulling on on the press to bring it up and down, and it looks fully functional. It's a neat little scene. Yep. So from there we go in and we see uh, the explosion of the arts uh, in the Renaissance period. The Renaissance, a time of renewed interest in the worlds of poetry and music, science, philosophy, and art. There's uh, students working on some some drawings and paintings. I think now he's picking out like color swatches or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which seems odd. With burnt umber and, and titanium yeah. white. There's a uh, there's a sculptor who is working on a uh, yes a marble statue. What was weird is when the ride opened up through the the Cronkite era, there was an exposed breast on the statue. But when they redid it in 2000, except and they chose to cover up that exposed breast because I, I don't know I guess so you, you get to see that aspect of the arts there's musicians uh, on the other side uh, playing uh, not a fiddle <laughs> something else a lute and, and some other uh, uh, it's a, a lira da braccio oh thank you so today there is a guy that looks an awful lot like Andrew Jackson talking to someone else uh, but it when this ride first opened and through the uh, through the Cronkite era, there was a schoolmaster reading Virgil to students mm-hmm. who were sitting down and, and reclining. And one of those reclining students ended up back in the Greek era uh, in today's version. So he got he got moved around. Uh, and from there, we move into uh, a neat, powerful little scene of uh, Michelangelo working on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and you kind of slide underneath him. And I, I got to say, this is the one of the first changes that I noticed. This scene used to be so much more powerful. And we're going to talk about another one that had a lot more power in a little bit. Um, but Cronkite would say, Behold the majesty of the Sistine ceiling. And the music kind of came up as he said that and as you passed under that Sistine Chapel. And just his words and the way that it was done and that it was supposed to be the Sistine Chapel, it just had so much more polling powers and told the story so much better. Now it's just like, and they painted things in the Renaissance when you go through. It just, it's just not there anymore. That that touch was really lost in, on, from, from Irons On. How this is an ex- example right in this scene, you know, as you look up and you see all the, the wood that's tied and the, the whole Sistine Chapel scene is done really well, but that's a very purposeful fade to black, if you will, because as you come around the corner, you've got something huge sitting there and noisy. Yeah. On this wave of inspiration, we sail into a bold new era, an age of astounding inventions and ever-increasing progress in communications. It is a giant printing press, which which I guess they actually got a real old printing press. So it was designed actually from an actual patent drawings from 1863, oh, okay. and it's actually officially a, yeah, it's a steam press is what the what the the name is. Uh, there's two parts of it. There's the red and, and the green part, the red, the big red wheel, um, and the, the green part has wasn't running last time, so it has what's called a regulator, which looks like an upside down Y with two balls on it. That's actually a governor or regulator for steam, and that doesn't uh, th- doesn't spin anymore. That a lot of the wheels and gears and bolt. Pulleys and belts used to do a lot more things than it 
really used to hiss and moan and heck of a lot Oh, more. God. It was really steamy. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So how the, the, the next figure to come up is one of the most infamous um, for, for many a reasons. He's changed locations. He's changed his spiel. His volume has changed over time. So, so once you make a newspaper, you got to sell the newspaper. So pointing out uh, at the crowd was this little boy who I think the figure was from the Carousel of Progress. Mm. Uh, and he would, uh, he would stand there and, and yell, Extra, extra New York Daily! <laughs> over and over again. And it would just echo through this whole scene. No matter where you were, you would just hear this kid. And then in 2007, they picked him up and turned his back to the audience <laughs> and moved him as far down that little forced perspective fake street as they could. And I don't, does he say anything anymore or is he just he yells that the civil war's over extra, extra. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I, I wonder why they moved him back and faced him the other way because they could have just walked over and turned his volume down a little bit and it was more effective when he was trying to sell you the paper than you know having us yeah i don't understand it, that move there there's a facebook group of ex uh cast members and on one of them uh, one of the cast members claims that the boy used to be so close that people you know guest riding by could reach out and touch his face and and that that apparently hmm. used to happen a lot, and that's why they moved it. I, I don't know that I buy that because I rode that plenty of times before the refurb, and I don't I don't really remember him being right. I up mean, by if the that's car. the case, they could have drilled a couple holes and moved him back three feet, you know, and still faced you on the corner on the street, you know. I think he just uh, didn't sell enough papers, and they're like, "You're in the other <laughs> corner now." <Jeff."> yeah, <laughs> he's been shamed. <laughs> Yeah, he was annoying though because you could you could hear him in the Renaissance coming up, and then after you passed him, it's like he just wouldn't shut up. You know, oh my gosh! And would, whatever it is about the tone of his voice was just very cutting and very uh, irritating. Yeah, it went right through you. Okay, so actually, so let's talk about the timeline thing because uh, the next scene shows a telegraph operator, right? And there's a very specific event that's tied to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The thing that he's the telegraph thing that they're reading is actually about the golden spike being driven at the promontory summit and that happened on may 10th 1869 Hmm. so how does that fit in with your so jump from the renaissance right to 1865 at the end of the sistine chapel to the the civil (laughs) war ending which is about 250 years or something like that nothing significant happened between those two time periods you know the uh, continents being settled and stuff we'll we'll just skip all that yep uh, but uh yeah then you go to the telegraph uh in 1869 so yeah. and then we jump pretty pretty quick after that right because right after the telegraph scene comes the telephone and i would say i would pit that scene there around the 1920s 30s somewhere yeah that there. would be my guess yeah maybe even you know uh, oh, actually, here, I've got it here. That the Magneto switchboard was fabricated from an actual model circa 1898. Oh. Well, so, much a little older. Hmm. 
little older than we thought. So there's about three or four women uh, working the switchboard there. Not really switches per se. I mean, switches in those days were actually uh, fabric covered wires with these plugs on it. They would actually make a physical connection um, from uh, of routing the phone calls. And um, if you listen carefully in that scene, you can certainly hear some little, you know, I'll patch you through, you know, so-and-so calling for so-and-so and, and, um, kind of a little bit there of, of you know, what a party line was or how, how, this, how the switching worked. Oh, and we also didn't mention that there's the little uh, the theater facade with the ticket yes. taker inside. Just on your on your right hand side, and uh, she reminds me of the, the the ticket taker at the at the Main Street Cinema in a way. It reminds yeah. you of what what it used to look like over there. So now the the idea here is that you know we've we've gone from sending that information over the wire to being able to speak it directly to movies and, and, and information newsreels bought directly to you. Uh, and then also then flipping back to our left comes another media, right? Yeah. The wireless, the wireless. Once, if you can communicate with wires, you got to get rid of the wires. That's right. So, uh, so then we have a scene of, a, of a radio play being recorded. Uh, and there's a couple of neat details in here. One is that the uh, the microphone uh, had the letters. Uh, it, it looked as if it would the call sign for the radio station was WDP. So that was Walt Disney Productions, which is what uh, the name of the company was in '82 when they made Epcot. So there was a little a little nod there. Uh, and inside of the booth, today there is only one radio actor, but in the old days there were two, uh, and the female. Uh, moved upstairs uh and got a job uh put on a fur wig and a uh, some high boots and a uh and a mini skirt and she's now uh, a computer scientist but in the old days she was a radio performer and then uh once you got past the radio star there was like a little uh like a radio tower with an animated effect of the uh like the waves coming out uh, of that which leads us to to the 20th century. Then television brings the world into our homes, profoundly changing our perceptions of life itself. This to me was like one of the cheapest scenes that, that was done, <laughs> that it did not look very good. It was this dad with like a five o'clock shadow sitting on a couch with his wife and the daughter like sitting on a table or sitting on a little uh, stool, and they're watching the Ed Sullivan show, the Ed Sullivan show, and Ozzie and Harriet, and uh, a little Walter Cronkite news clip. Uh, but the scene behind them was this thing of was this sort of like abstract concept of a cityscape that just didn't read very well. Um, it was kind of like black with like some windows and some cutout things, and it just looked really really cheap and uh it's been redone now it's been restaged they actually make it look like the inside of a house instead of this uh other abstract concept with like rooftops and antennas uh and they added a figure in there from the uh from the jeremy irons version of the kid like laying down yep who used to talk to uh the japanese girl on that system so uh that that scene is has been much improved yeah i was gonna say i, th- I think of all the scenes that have changed over time this one definitely was a positive and welcoming change and brian there's a little secret about that scene now with the records right there is uh if you notice there is a stack of records uh a record rack next to uh vinyl records next to the television uh set 
and they Imagineers go in and change that periodically throughout the year. So Christmas time, usually there is some Christmas album that's put up towards the front of it. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, the Beatles' Greatest Hits album was there for a long time, which of course is funny because the scene is set in 1960-something and the Beatles' Greatest Hits album wasn't released until 1982. Um, and and uh, there was a Jimi Hendrix album up there for a while. and So they, they, they generally rotate. Uh, but you'll notice if you if you ride it more than a few times a year, take a look at the record and see if it changes. Sound of Music, I think, was uh, was there, or Mary Poppins, the Mary Poppins soundtrack, was was in the in the rack sometime in the last couple of years too. That's cool. Yeah, so that's a neat thing about that scene. And how wasn't there a thing above the TV at one point that had like five different screens? Yep. Originally, uh, you had the TV, and then you're right. There were different screens showing to like different pieces of different uh, channels or something. Wasn't yeah, it? exactly. So was, you're trying to get like more of a broad. Feel. Yes, I mean you go from you know newspaper to telegraph to telephone to now you're in television, uh, which leads us to where? Yeah, the computer. Instant communications create an ever-increasing flow of facts and figures. To manage this growing storehouse of information, we invent the computer, a revolutionary tool made practical by the tiny transistor. Oddly enough, in the uh, in the original version, this this uh, Vic Perrin version that ran until the Cronkite version, there was not much to look at in this one area that we're going to speak of, and they actually went back and added two scenes into this area and what what so, was it before it was just it was just like scrims or something it's so non-memorable i cannot remember what was there and all the video from that time is so dark yeah I, I can't get a clear picture of what it was but they went back and added two rooms uh and one is uh the kid who used to be pulling type out of the type tray uh it's a it's his boy's bedroom uh there's his bed is on the uh the left as you come in and then he's over on a desk like with a pc uh working on something and he's got some games and things uh shooting about on the desk he's got a game called space hop and parcheesi and a couple of board games stacked up uh and he's doing something on his computer and i have a i have a personal story about this scene uh because back when i was in my uh troublemaker days uh, and visiting the parks quite frequently, I noticed that uh, right uh, between the bed and the track, there were a pile of comic books there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, boy, that could really use something else. Because if we're trying to make this realistic for what would be in like a teenage boy's bedroom, it's like <laughs> there's one more piece of printed material that needs to be there. <laughs> See where this is going. So... Keep it clean, uh, Hal. <laughs> this is a family yeah, show. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so, Hood Gibson and I uh, went across the street to the to the Crossroads uh, Plaza one day, and I picked up two copies of the latest issue. And uh, I knew I would have to throw it from the car over to the scene in order to try to get it into place. So I brought some rubber cement with me, and I cut the cover off of the one magazine and then rubber cemented it onto the back. So that way, no matter which way it landed, it, it would land with the cover up. And then I also rubber cemented the pages together so that way uh, it wouldn't flay open as, as I was throwing it. So we, we found a quiet time uh, when there weren't many people around us. Uh, we rode up, I got to the edge, and uh, as we hit that scene, 
I just flipped it out. I had it in my backpack, and back then they didn't check backpacks or anything, so you could carry anything that you wanted to into the park. And I just, with a gentle toss, the Playboy flew over and landed perfectly next to the comic <laughs> books. And uh, I t- we told friends about it, and f- for a good like month and a half, two months, uh, it stayed there because it was in a place <laughs> where you know you wouldn't really is bright enough, or if you looked there, you would see it, but really you wouldn't notice it that much. And then about two and a half, three months later, all of a sudden, the lighting in that room was like radically redone. It was much brighter. <laughs> and there was this plastic thing that looked like a 35 millimeter camera on a tripod pointed out towards the cars going by. <laughs> Trying to look like he had a camera set up in his room, but like more of a security thing. So <laughs> somebody eventually found it and then they were, decided to make some precautions against that. So That's funny. If you happen to ride during that time period, you, you may have seen a little bonus item in there. That's right. Um, so once you get out of his room, then uh, then there's a, a mom working in a paperless office. So she's she's in her in a in an office, and and this was really the concept. It was supposed to be computers, and then the concept of the paperless office, and she's she's doing her work. She actually came from the the next scene um, where she was one of the console operators, and they moved her over uh to have another figure for the scene uh so you see so this is again this is this was actually in 86 people having home computers was still relatively novel and as we talked about before the show started brian how much what was the average cost of a computer at that time adjusted for inflation three four five thousand dollars sometimes even more uh as you got to the later the latter half of the 90s or the uh, 80s and into the early 90s i mean there were macintosh models that were like twelve thousand dollars and this location is actually today today if you were on the ride this would be i think around the location where you would see the car parked outside of the the garage and then like the yeah where they where where they had the off the kids bedroom at one point with the computer and then the the woman in the office scene with the computer i mean i assume we're talking about all that i know at one point they had at&t had their own branded desktop computers and because they were the sponsor they had at&t boxes in there you know at&t computers Right, so the boy's bedroom is is where the car is. Then that, yeah, I think that's right. what it is. Yeah, yeah, and then the mom is probably where like the sort of like Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, like right. smushed together. Right, is in that location. So, and then, uh, and then from there you would move into this. It's really kind of, this this scene ended up on postcards and was printed like over and over again. It was sort of like this big wall panel with a big map of the United States and a map of Florida. And a map of uh, of the world, uh, and it was supposed. There's this huge sign that says "Network Operations Center" on top of it. Yeah, AT and T Worldwide Intelligent Network. And actually, we Ooh. tweeted out a picture of this tonight, um, and and our tweet says the, the says the following because it actually changed um, uh, changed names over 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 time period. So the one that we tweeted out is, is the original, which has the uh, the bell symbol on it. And says Network okay. Operations Center and has two audio animatronic figures sitting down there. Um, but yeah, it's got that whole map and apparently they're monitoring all of the world in Florida from right, right Yeah. So so the lady on the right in that picture became the mom in the paperless office. So they moved her from they left the guy <clears throat> who was in the middle and, and moved her over. And then 
on the right hand side <clears throat> there is this other guy it's hard to describe like up in this weird sort of like shaped protrusion with like three screens above him and then was running kind of like computer code looking stuff in there it's he's, a very network operating <laughs> oh yeah that's it he's a network operator he's a network operator so so now we've gone uh through time to the earth we're seeing all this wonderful stuff and and now we need to have a a really big conclusion and we're inside of a giant dome today we're merging the technologies of communications and computers to store process and share information and we're creating a vast electronic network stretching from our homes to the reaches of space so in in the Cronkite version there were these neon tubes uh, with with this with these chasing so it was these pink and blue hued neon tubes and, and I don't even want to call them neon because they weren't as bright and they could come on and off very quickly. And they, if I remember, they had some sort of bubble or chase pattern in it. So when they lit up, they would give the illusion of, of, of speed. And they were arranged moving forward in different grouping patterns and stuff to give you this idea of, I don't know, maybe leaving Earth and going up above Earth because that's about what we're what we're going to do. Um, and it really was, it was, a, it was a transition zone, um, you know, done with done with lights and stuff um, we have entered a wondrous new age the age of information a time of new promise and new hope for ourselves and spaceship earth I, I, I always like the effect and actually if you ride it today there's it's kind of strobes going off but the original effects are still there you can see them just turned off and and it's a shame because I wish that effect was good. It was it was a good transition. You know, this will bring up in a second to one of my other pet peeves about uh, poorly done trans transitions in the ride that have lost the original feel. And I think that was the definitely start of one of them there. Yeah, that was a really neat effect. You're you're right. I, I have to agree. Um, this is another uh, the second and and probably the most important transition I think that was that has been failed by the Jeremy Irons update. Um, when you, you rose to the top and, and where you would turn, the theme that we all know, I believe it's called Space, um, was played. And it just... way that you came out of that they actually were rotating the stars so it appeared as if earth was rising as you as you went around mm, um that's right had this incredible feel to it and then you saw we'll talk about in a second the spaceships and other things up there it was so much more powerful the stars don't rotate anymore so you don't get that sense of the earth rising there was this this, this optical illusion of it rising the music is gone it's just like hey we reached the top and we're on earth it, it's completely, completely lost. I mean, the videos out there of the Cronkite version don't do it justice, but if you saw it and you hear the space theme, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it really left you, you know, I'm sure people got chills up there because it was just a much, much more powerful scene than, than, than what it is today.
so we we come out of this tunnel then and then we're at uh at the top of the uh of the building uh, well i shouldn't say the top because there's actually a huge dome up there that uh, that they turn into basically a planetarium. So once you reach the top, you're in space. Uh, and I understand that uh, they had looked initially at getting a, a regular planetarium projector for use there, but uh, all the ones that were in existence were not big enough. So they actually had to make their own because uh, there wasn't one capable of, of projecting the stars on, on the inside of the dome like they wanted it to do. So the, they had to do some engineering for that. Um, so as you, as you, you got your, your, uh, look at earth and then, uh, if you would kind of look up, I believe that's when you would see, uh, the astronaut working on the, the free floating, uh, cylindrical shaped satellite, right? So, uh, so you'd see that and then, uh, you would travel a little bit farther and then literally almost right in front of you was this other satellite with solar panels with an astronaut working on it attached to that satellite is an arm and that arm as as you're tilting back uh as your car spins backwards and you start to t tilt back uh and you look in front of you you see that that arm is attached to this enormous spaceship or maybe a space station and there's a woman inside of uh inside of that space station in a in a window that you can see and she's manipulating the arm and uh they're talking to the uh to the astronauts about uh the repairs that are going on uh and all of a sudden it's you're in the blackness you see this little bit of thing then it leads to a little bigger thing and then all of a sudden you turn around and, like there's just this enormous thing in front of you and it was it was extremely powerful uh and then as you continue to go down uh, it almost looked like you like got sucked into the to the spaceship because there were these uh, sort of like this uh, entryway with like red lights around it. Right. It was originally supposed to be an airlock that you were going. Through. Okay, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's what it seemed like. So, um, but the fascinating thing, uh, as we've talked about in previous shows about when things get redone, if there's no reason to actually like remove something, it's left there. And uh, in the cases, a lot of the changes that were made, uh, because the stuff is stuck inside this geosphere, it's like there's no way to pull it down and get it out, or at least the costs to do that are so prohibitive that uh, in the case with the spaceship, they, they did remove the um, they did remove the the astronaut and the satellite. Uh, they refurbished it, and I believe the story is they were going to put it back, and then they were just like. We don't want to. So that just, it just never, they cleaned it. They spit and polished it. Then they were just didn't bother to hang it back up again. They just decided it was not worth the money. No. Which, which is really a shame because that gave you the sense of being up in space. You know, you were supposed to, that was that, that warp scene was, was you getting up in space, looking out at the space station and seeing the earth in the background. So, yeah, I, I still go up there and cringe at the current version. It really, really irks yeah, me. Yeah, now the the original plan for up there was that was supposed to be the lunar surface. And if you, as you as you pass by, I mean, we should mention that the vehicles turn yeah. and change your perspective um, first once in the scene and then all the way around for the trip, for the trip back down. But um, if you look at the border right outside your 
right outside your uh, time machine vehicle. Uh, you'll notice that it's done, uh, I mean, it's almost like dream flight clouds, but it's this little repeating pattern that was to simulate uh, where they would have put the moon rock behind it uh, for the lunar surface to give you that illusion and it would have blended in with the moon rock. So it's actually cut there. And originally that was what the whole top, I mean, there's concept art and everything. That's what the whole top scene was supposed to mm -hmm. be was that you were kind of on the, the moon or above the moon, looking out at the guys in space working on that and the space station behind you. Uh, and I, I guess how, I don't know if you've mentioned it, I mean, the space station's still there that the woman was working from. They just blacked the whole thing out. Yep. So if you have a really powerful flashlight <laughs> uh, or really strong eyes, you can turn around and actually see it behind you as your machine starts to rotate for the trip back to Earth. Uh, so you can see it sitting back there. Yeah. Uh, it's just got black paint over everything. Supposedly the uh, the character is there. The skin, the head is off of it, and uh, the uh, just like the robotic part of it is is left there, uh, which I could see for a little while. But eventually they would go strip it for parts. Right. We we should also mention what the uh, moon landing with the top scene there was used for prior to opening. And, uh, you know, as they were constructing the exterior of the ride, they were also obviously working on the interior. Uh, and they were getting to the point where they were about to complete the exterior, and they still had a lot of work to do inside. The problem was they were getting ready to close up the bottom of the, of the ride where, you know, as it was wide open, they would send everything up the shaft into whatever floor it needed to go to. So Tom Nabby told us that uh, when they you know, we're getting ready to close the bottom up. They took, literally took all of the set pieces that had not been installed inside the ride yet and sent them up to the top and put them on the lunar surface. And then one by one, you know, after they closed the bottom of the ride, brought them down as they were ready to install them in the various scenes. So at one point you probably had a Roman Senator talking to a, a caveman talking to, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, just a giant warehouse. Yes. Amazing. Uh, and you know, Tom, the, <clears throat> the other thing that, that, that ship does, uh, it gives you that sense of depth because there were mm -hmm. things in the foreground and the midground and the background, uh, all of that really helped build that illusion. Uh, and today if it's just, you know, if you're just looking up and it's a, and it's a gorgeous picture of the earth, I mean, they, they probably used the best picture that they had in, in, in 1982 of the earth. And I know it's been updated several times as NASA has taken better and more high resolution, uh, photos. Uh, and I think there's even a thing like the cloud layer is separate from the, the earth layer so they can right. animate the clouds and it's, it looks much more impressive um, from that standpoint. But that that full illusion of depth is is now gone. Yeah, it's it's completely gone. So, yeah, I, like I said, I, I cringe, cringe every time. But um, so that's that's the point where when the ride first opened too, they actually had to rotate manually rotate the. <laughs> the cars for the for the debts for the trip back home um so if you haven't guessed already too is as you know if you've been on the ride you know that you spiral up um and it's really kind of a, a double helix in a way where you the all the ride is on the on the outside of the sphere and uh you you descend through the center of the sphere um so your time machine rotates backwards and again those headrests come into play Back in the Cronkite days, um, they kept you entertained with some 
interesting light fields, which are still there today. Um, there's a couple of them left. There was all sorts of kaleidoscope. In the information age, our knowledge and tools of communication will continue to grow and improve. We'll discover new ways to share our ideas and dreams, to create a better world for today, tomorrow, and tomorrow's child. And um, we were treated to the song Tomorrow's Child, which is probably one of the most uh, memorable pieces of music uh, from, from the Epcot era. And that's... um been stripped out you know lcd screens were added to the to the cars uh in our society where instant gratification got to be touching a screen and got to be looking at something all the time (laughs) we uh majority of the trip down now has been blacked out uh and all the mirrors and and kaleidoscope effects and everything of tomorrow's child remember the silhouettes of the kids playing and doing cartwheels and yeah all those different things as tomorrow's child played And, and i i didn't think it was bad i mean yeah it's it was very 70s and 80s but i wish something could have been done with those screens that was less interactive or interactive enough these days um teach a good lesson you know to talk about the future rather than making you in- interact you know yeah. that, that that's kind of how i look at it it was it's a very constrained space or at least it was originally going down there yeah. uh so there wasn't i mean like you said it was literally just walls with mirrors and even the there were some cases where like there were just video monitors on the floor pointed up and the mirrors would sort of make yeah. them appear multiple <laughs> times. It was very, very cheap. Yeah. Uh, very simple. Um, I think what they did with the tomorrow's child versions, they actually just took all the, the stuff that was on the readouts and added the kids like on top of it yeah. to, <laughs> to add a little bit more of a human element to it. It's like a really bad green screen. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the one place where that really did get improved was in the Jeremy Irons version because there were places where they put futuristic cities mm-hmm. uh, to the side and there was a, a neat section, which we won't go into too much detail here because it's a little too late, I think, for, for our timeline. But there were there were some neat static displays uh, that were added to the top uh, that were then... Uh, they used sort of like a Pepper's ghost effect to make it appear it was if uh, it was on the sides of the cars when it was actually all up at the ceiling. Uh, but they seem to blow out the space a little bit better in, in, in that version and, and make it a little bit more exciting to look at. But yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, some people like the screen thing and some people don't. And back then, the best we could do is like scrims and rotating lights and some TV sets. Ours is a time of unprecedented choice and opportunity. So let us explore and question and understand. Let us learn from our past and meet the challenges of the future. Let us go forth and fulfill our destiny on Spaceship Earth. So after you descend and you come down, you go down to the the Omnimover exits in the same fashion with a a rotating um, turntable. And um, I think we're going to end it here, given the length of our podcast, but we should definitely do another episode with the uh, Earth Station and, and Global Neighborhood and how that's all changed. And maybe we can incorporate that into some of the Communicore uh, episodes that we do in, in the future. Uh, I do, I do want to mention the lounge. The sure, yeah. lounge absolutely. there because I've been to it um, several times, actually. Uh, so originally the sponsor was AT&T Bell. Uh, and then uh, Siemens, 
In any event, uh, Siemens completely redid the lounge when they took over sponsorship. So it's very uh, trippy, but uh, one of my friends is does a lot of business with them. So we were going to Disney. He got uh, he got access, and we went up. And it's kind of like walking into like if IKEA designed a technologically advanced space, <laughs> and uh, there's a reception desk and a soda machine. As there always, you know, there's fountain sodas there for you to and coffee and stuff like that. Nice bathrooms, but then in the back. Down the hallway, they have all these uh, meeting spaces for Siemens uh, to actually have corporate meetings there, uh, you know, different divisions and stuff like that. And it apparently gets used quite frequently. But the cool thing about it uh, from a from a, an attraction perspective is that they have their own entrance to the ride. So when you're done uh, having your refreshments or having your meeting up there, uh, if you want to go on the ride, you have a VIP entrance. Uh, you go down a set of steps and you open a door and then you walk down this little hallway that when you are uh, coming onto the ride uh, where you're just about to go up and have your picture taken, there's a there's a bank of windows on the one side and that's actually looking out from the queue for the VIPs. Hmm. And so they're kind of pulled from the other side and put in the cars if uh, if they if they appear at the at the line. So it's kind of neat. Well, guys, I think that about wraps up Spaceship Earth. It's been grand and miraculous, and uh, hopefully tomorrow's child will uh, improve it even more. <laughs> We're still waiting for tomorrow's child to do something. Uh, you know, in 1985, uh, you know, tomorrow's child is, is here today. You know, that's the lyric, and it is true that they are here today. So let, let's do something. Let's They're listening to the show right now. That's right. That's yep. right. All right. As always, we mentioned some of our merchandise that we have. Uh, we have all sorts of T-shirts and, and mugs and all sorts of good stuff with house designs. And uh, all proceeds go to help keeping this show on the air as well as doing our film restorations, of which we have some fantastic new films uh, in the digital uh, conversion process right now. We're just waiting for them to be come, uh, sent back to us. We have some uh, awesome, really, really old Fort Wilderness footage. Um, a certain type of amphibian is going to make another appearance in film. And uh, we have a, two very, very rare 16mm films that are coming our way that we cannot wait to, to, to get completed. But as usual, or as always, I should say, how uh, releases a new design with each episode. So with the theme of Spaceship Earth, do we, do we have anything this month, How What are you going to surprise us with? Yeah, we'll do, you know, we'll do a Spaceship Earth shirt, because how right. can not? Should we do something triangular or geodesic or tomorrow's mm. child? <laughs> something, something clever, something, something clever and awesome. Uh, I would like a ghostly chariot. Oh, oh, there you go. How about just extra, extra New York's daily in yeah. giant bold faces? <laughs> that's actually that is actually a good. That's a great suggestion, Todd. We'll, we'll. So there will be. How will surprise us? He doesn't have one ready, but I'm sure he'll surprise us by the time this hit the airwaves, and we'll certainly let everybody know about it. So if you want to check it out, you can go to retrowdw.com forward slash support us. And as always, our pins are available as well as at retrowdw.com forward slash pins. And again, as we said earlier, all proceeds help to keep this on the air and keep us uh, bringing these film restorations and uh, different different items to you. So with that said, guys, it's time to wrap up. Uh, should we pick a topic for next month for episode 28? I I think we should have a hoot and holler in time, Ooh. and finally visit 
River Country. Ah, that's a great it's getting idea. Hot. Yep. It'd be nice to cool down in that swimming hole. <laughs> the old swimming the old hole. Swimming hole. So excellent. So so episode twenty eight, we will take you back to River Country. And uh, if you can't wait, go take a look at one of our recent film restorations of River Country to get you excited about that. It's got some great point of view footage going down. Uh, so take a look at that, and uh, we'll be back to you uh, next month with with River Country. And uh, as always, thank you very much to our listeners. Give us a review and a shout out on iTunes or Google Play if you can. Uh, keep the emails and uh, tweets and, and Facebook comments coming. We really appreciate it. And uh, as always, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro Disney World on Twitter and Instagram at RetroWDW. On Facebook at Retro Disney World. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, you can find our producer, Jason Bartell from Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, at GoAwayGreen. For JT Couser, at LS1JT. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, at Brian P. Miles. <laughs>